What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. For most of her career, Erica Nardini worked at big companies like Microsoft, AOL, and even Fidelity Investments. But then she took a big risk. And when I joined Barstool, I knew that there was going to be no looking back. Barstool Sports is a comedy website known for the kinds of things that guys talk about over beers. News, sports, and also women. This is a company that intentionally is not PC. From Business Insider, this is Success, How I Did It. I'm Allison Chantel. On this episode, Nardini tells us what attracted her to Barstool, a site that some people call sexist. Why as many as 8 million so-called stoolies check out the site multiple times per day and why she sometimes likes to text prospective hires on the weekend. As she told me, her winding path to Barstool started when she graduated from Colby College and landed in Boston. The economy was great when I graduated from college, and I was a sociology major and a philosophy. I loved sociology. I thought it was fascinating because it's just basically the study of people in groups. And when I was a junior, I interned in Boston, and... I worked at Fidelity Investments and I was like, oh shit, like I should have been an econ major. I should have done something more disciplined with my education versus liberal arts and writing a lot of papers and reading a lot. And so my senior year, I started to think that I really needed to get ambitious in stats and econ and business administration, all this stuff, which at the end of the day wasn't for me. And I graduated and I went back to work for Fidelity in their legal department. And I thought maybe that I would want to be a lawyer. And at the time, I made a fair amount of money and I hated it. I found nothing to live for. I really like to work and I've always liked to work. And I didn't like that I couldn't find like my soul in what I was doing. And so I often got to go to this building at Fidelity where the advertising people hung out. And I was like, oh, I want to work in advertising. And the HR person at Fidelity was like, that's the single worst decision you could make. That's just dumb. And why would you do that? You have such promise working here in the legal department. And I was like, I don't really want to work in the legal department. So I took a pay cut. I was thinking I was making like $50,000, which was a lot of money for me at the time. Yeah, and it's still a lot started. of money now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I went and made $16,000. Um, well, we went from 50 to 16? Yes. And wow. racked up so much debt, it could hardly feed myself. But... I found my passion, which was in a far more creative environment. And at the time, the internet was just beginning, and print was very dominant, and broadcast was very dominant, and nobody cared about the internet. And so I, you know, I think I was like 22, got to play in the internet, and I just fell in love and never looked back. So 
I've been in the internet ever since. Started my career once I entered on the advertising side of the business. And what I realized is that while I very much loved working at an ad agency, and I think an ad agency is an incredible place to start a career because you're just forced to learn and do simultaneously uh, without a lot of supervision, which I personally liked. What I realized is that I wanted to work uh, at a publisher and I didn't want to buy something or inform something. I actually wanted to build it myself. Yeah. So it sets you up for a great career uh, running the business side and Mm -hmm. really running a business in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think if you don't know how the advertising side works, it's impossible to run a publisher these days. Yep. So you've got that background and then you go to AOL. What was it like joining AOL, being CMO? You were huge, had a huge group under you there. Sure. AOL was fascinating. You know, it was, it's a really interesting company. It's a internet company that went through, you know, 15, 20 years ago, maybe more, what television companies are going through right now, which is how do you manage the attrition of subscribers, maintain your business model, and pivot to new sources of revenue and new sources of audience? So I loved it. I thought AOL enabled me to think about how to drive evolution and the importance of execution in that and the importance of vision in that and the importance of stamina in that. There was another company you were a part of along the way, but I want to talk a little bit about first how you found Barstool as a reader. Oh, yeah. You're from the area where mm-hmm. kind of Barstool's from. It was founded in Boston. Yeah, I lived in Boston when Dave created Barstool. And I remember like stories of this guy. And who, Dave Portnoy is the founder. Yeah, Dave Portnoy is the founder. El Prez. El Prez. And I lived in Boston when El Prez created Barstool. And To me, Barstool is the way most every guy I grew up with, all of my guy friends from college, it's just how guys talked, it's how they related to one another, it's how they saw the world, and I've always had a guyish sense of humor. I always really liked the idea that there was this guy out there who went up against everything to build something, and it was something that, you know, I feel like as a woman, I felt that I had to take a more traditional, or I had to make traditional choices to move in my career. And I didn't know Dave at the time at all, but I loved the idea that there was this guy who was out there like a Don Quixote, like, you know, pursuing his own path. And he was on a quest and brick by brick and handing out papers and sharing a point of view of whether it was popular or unpopular, it was a point of view. And I really admired that always. And I thought the shirts were funny. And I, when Deflategate happened, I read a lot of Barstool because... Dave actually got arrested, didn't he? Dave got arrested. Four of them got arrested. For protesting? Yes, at the NFL headquarters. But what I loved is I had created Backstage. I had left AOL and was creating Backstage at that time. And, and what was Backstage? Backstage was a basically direct-to-consumer platform for music artists. What we saw was that if you find a music artist posting something and you refresh it, you just see the likes and the retweets and you see heat. But music artists don't have a way to connect to consumers directly. They don't own their data. They can't distribute content. They create a ton of page views and engagement and interaction on other platforms, but they don't make a business from it. And I thought that was a really good problem to be solved. And the company that I always looked to was Barstool. Because when I, on a Saturday morning, was reading, you know, Dave had a long, heartfelt post about Deflategate, at the bottom of it was an ad for a free Brady t-shirt. And I, I remember the morning exactly, I bought five t-shirts. 
And I thought, how smart this company that thinks about content and commerce simultaneously. And the commerce is an extension of what I felt in reading a piece of content. And I loved that. So I got connected to Barstool kind of through happenstance, but I'm so glad I did. When did it start to become a career opportunity that you might work for this company? Yeah, I I didn't think it would be, to be honest with you. We had gone to see the Charon and guys about backstage because full screen and full screen direct was essentially trying to do a very similar thing, which is enable artists to go direct to consumer. And I remember vividly being in the meeting and Jesse Jacobs said, oh, hey, yeah, we just bought a majority stake of this company you've never heard of called Barstool Sports. And I like whipped out my phone and I was like, oh, I have the Barstool app. Like, let me tell you everything that's right about this company and why it's incredible. And this is the jankiest piece of shit technology I've ever seen. Like, there's so many things that they should fix and do. And I left the meeting super jealous because I felt like they were going to find a white guy with an MBA and the right pedigree to, to go partner with Dave to run that company. And I went on my way. And then Betsy Morgan, who used to be the CEO of HuffPost, And Dave and I met for coffee late that spring, early that summer, just to meet Dave. And he and I clicked, and I loved what he had to say. And I wasn't sure what El Prez was going to, I wasn't sure who I was going to get. And is he like he, that's another thing I wanted to ask. He's incredible. Yeah. He, it's hard to imagine him being any less filtered than he is. He, it's not a matter of filter. Like he's quite humble and a great listener. And, intellectually very curious and I loved meeting him I was like this is a brilliant creator who's created something and knows that there's a very big place for it doesn't have the tool set to get there and I don't mean him personally but just the operation of it and what makes Dave very rare is that he is exceptionally savvy and a funny brilliant creator Anyways, I loved our meeting and we had a couple more coffees and and I realized I was like, I just really want to work at Barstool Sports. Like I would love the opportunity to work at Barstool Sports and the rest happened super quickly and I've been here ever since. Yeah. So tell me about the interview process, because I know when we were talking about you coming in for this interview, you mentioned like, oh, it's so frustrating. Sometimes people think I'm just this token like at Barstool, oh, yeah. which is ridiculous. Yeah. Dave brought in a token woman as a CEO, which is funny. Except that he interviewed 74 guys yeah. and one woman for the job as yeah. CEO. Yes. And you got it. Yes. So it doesn't sound like he was like particularly hunting for a woman. No, I don't think all. he was looking for a woman <laughs> at all. Dave had been approached by a lot of companies to give him money. And the Charning guys were the only ones that stuck. And the reason was the Charning guys saw his vision and they wanted to help him achieve it. And their only question to him was, if we gave you money, what would you do? And I think he liked that. I don't think he was looking for a woman CEO. I don't, I don't No, clearly I don't, not. Obviously not. I think he was looking for a partner to help him take this thing to the moon and... I feel really fortunate that we crossed paths on that. So how did you beat out 74 other candidates? What did you I mean, do? I think it came at the end of the line, so they probably, <laughs> there were probably very few left by the time I got around. You know, I think one of the things is Barstool is not for everyone. I remember I met Keith Markowitz, who's the editor-in-chief, K. Marco, for a drink for our interview. And How many rounds did you have to do? Like, do you have to meet I've everyone? met a lot of people, yeah. yeah. Then and now we are really diligent about hiring 
and I appreciated that process. The recruiter was awesome. Uh, the chairman and guys were awesome. But I met Keith, and we had a great conversation, and I told him everything I would want to do, and I was excited about it, and asked him a ton of questions, whatever. And the end of the, end of the interview, he said, you're the only one that didn't ask me about the girls. Hmm. You're the only one that didn't ask or give an opinion that Barstool needed to shut down smoke show of the day or this, that, or the other thing, or the history of Barstool and you know the skeletons and controversies in Barstool's past are innumerable. And the reason I didn't ask is because I think at its core, there will never be another company like Barstool Sports. And the reason there will never be another company is that Dave created a brand for consumers and all he ever cared about and all anyone who ever came to Barstool cared about was how they connected with their crew. And they ignored technology, they ignored distribution, they ignored everything, but they inhaled any device or any platform that enabled them to talk more closely with their audiences. And what I felt was that what was most important was not to change the nucleus of that thing, but to make that thing become and evolve into something much bigger and to frankly preserve the heart of the relationship between Barstool and its fans, which, you know, to your, we talk about your tweet like six times a day at our place because we can't believe it. But the so, fact that a really small... I tweeted about yeah. how crazy the engagement on anything we write about Barstool. It's like... It's the, insane. And it's all from Google. People are searching for your news. They want to know what's they going on know. with your company. And so my feeling was you could get really tactically worked up about this and that and this and that in Barstool's past or, you know, Barstool publishes 180 pieces of content a day at this point. So that's a lot of content seven days a week. So you could get caught up in that or you could harness the potential of what this is and make it into something even bigger. And that's what I chose to do. So talk about you deciding to take this job. It is a controversial brand. Mm -hmm. I actually read that you said you had a group of women friends mm -hmm. who dropped you like a bad habit mm. once you took the job, yeah. which is wild. I knew that there was going to be no looking back. I, I was never public before. And I'm way more public now than I ever thought I would be or wanted to be. But it was also somewhat hurtful because I felt judged. And I felt that that I was looked down upon because I joined something that wasn't pristine and in the logical next step of what a CMO from AOL or a president of a startup would do. And that bothered me. I also found huge and unexpected champions, which you know was awesome. And I've met so many people since joining Barstool, women and men and execs and stoolies alike that have been really inspiring. And I don't regret a single thing. I'm so, so grateful for it. But it was a massive change for me in my network, in who and what I identified with and what I was identified with. And I find Barstool to be one of the most intellectually interesting things I've ever done. Talk a little bit about why this company was worth taking the risk on. I, I know like the churning guys have said, you know, we saw their Google Analytics yeah. and we've never yep. seen a site like it. Mm -hmm. We see the power of it when we write about mm -hmm. it on BI. But like what exactly did you guys build? Because it is 
like a cult-like following. There's really no other way to describe yeah, it. Yeah, it's alive. People are checking 20 times a day the yeah, site. Yeah, I mean, we have... That's unheard the, of Our now. numbers are unheard of. It's so funny. When I joined Barstool, Dave had stormed the Twitter lobby, but they had never had a meeting with Twitter. You know, I went... I had. <laughs> what a, do you mean he stormed the Twitter lobby? Uh, something happened. He tried to get verified. Oh, and God. It was when the Super Bowl was in San Francisco. And I can't remember exactly what happened, but... He had a beef with Twitter because he couldn't get verified, and he went and just stormed the lobby and demanded to talk to, you know, whomever Jack at Twitter. Dorsey. Yeah, exactly. Probably. So, you know, when I went to Facebook, our first meeting at Facebook, it was almost like they were like, hey, thanks for coming in with your regional sports blog. Like, I took this meeting as a favor. Like, not saying they were patronizing, but it was like a quaint meeting. And then clearly they looked into us and we started to do a lot on Facebook because we were like, all right, we're going to do Facebook Live. We broke it. We played with it. We experimented. We created hours long lives. I mean, Dave basically just does like his walk to work. We, like, he did the walk to work. Yeah. I loved walk to work. It's so funny. I was thinking about walk to work the other day. I loved walk to work. Lots of changes since the last walk to work. First of all, most notably my briefcase here, the strap on it broke. And that's a major problem for Dave walks to work. My favorite was when he would walk to work and stoolies in office buildings in New York would just heckle him from, you know, 20 floors up. But anyways, I think the power of Barstool and the connection between our guys and our audience is that it's just real. And Dave or any of our guys, Big Cat, KFC, K Marco, like none, they were always average guys who got a chance to do something non-average. But they still attacked it like average guys. You talk to Dave, like he would say, well, everyone there is pretty average. They're average looking. They're average at sports. They're... And so the connection between Barstool and its fans was always at the same level. And then the second thing is what Dave did and what these guys did is that they moved from writing blogs to social and then to video once I got there and they were already doing video before I got there but we really accelerated that seamlessly and the conversation with our audience is so constant that they feel in touch and they were like a family they can relate to like when the ESPN thing happened which was a lot but when it happened for our fans someone had hurt the family there was a man down in the troop and that's just rare and I think it's something we don't consciously work hard at but it's just ingrained into into everything that we do and that's partly why it's so cult-like is because it's constant and it's alive and there are 30 plus people who all day long talk to fans and share points of view and create content that really they just care about if somebody sees it and has a laugh. And that's all we do. That's all they do. We're going to have to get into some of the controversies. Okay, because, of course. Because Barstool is loved or hated. Yep. It's part of what makes something resonate mm -hmm. or the, the takes. And you guys mm -hmm. do lots of takes. So one thing you mentioned is the ESPN controversy. Mm -hmm. Recently, for people who might not know, you guys scored a TV deal. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess you had done a little bit of TV with Comedy Central yep. before last year at the Super Bowl, yep. but this was kind of, it was a big thing. Yeah, huge um, deal. And after one episode, <laughs> yeah. and Which apparently, and a three-year grudge by Sam Ponder, yeah. who is a big ESPN name and yep. anchor, it got canceled. Mm -hmm. And it got canceled because Dave had written about Sam in a pretty unflattering mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. arguably, I would say, sexist mm -hmm. way. So how do you deal with that? You're the CEO. Yeah. These are now your problems. Yeah. Yep. 
I spent much of last year thinking about distribution and what would Barstool look like and sound like and do on other people's air, whether that was a digital company or a social network like Facebook or a comedy channel like Comedy Central or sports channel like ESPN. We spent eight months working on that ESPN partnership and I poured myself into that. You know, it was uncomfortable along the way. Culturally, Barstool and ESPN are just very, very different. And I think there are great people at both companies. But ultimately, it was an uncomfortable partnership. I think that what's unfortunate about what happened is that it was never about the show. And the show itself was great. And that was heartbreaking. You know, Dave and I were talking about it last night, oddly. And we both agreed that if it were all to play out again, would would we have done it? And we both said yes. And the reason I say yes is that morale at Barstool Sports, I don't think has ever been as high as the day after that was canceled and everyone came together. I've never seen anything like the Stoolies and what they did to rally around the Pardon My Take guys and around Barstool at large. And in terms of the controversy, I think ESPN has some challenges. And one of the challenges is that they have super empowered talent, Sam had a three-year grudge and she played it and played it well. I don't think you can change the past. And if I came into Barstool apologizing for every time Barstool offended someone over the last 14 years, like I basically would not do anything else in my job, but I don't believe in that. And I don't think that's what I should be doing. And that is certainly not what I came here to do. And so my feeling is it's my job to harness what we bring to the table and deliver something that our crew wants and to find new people to be part of our crew. And that's not to say we won't do future television deals or content partnerships or licensing agreements, but I do think we will be far more judicious in it. I want to make sure that as our company, we're sure about what we're doing. And then we also choose other platforms and companies like Sirius is an awesome partner for us that understand that being outspoken and having a take means somebody's not going to like your take. And letting us be the type of creators that we are and helping us to find more fans for that. Yeah. I mean, there is a difference between having a take and saying that someone's job is to just make men hard. Yes. So 100%. you can't change the past. Yeah. Do you have any silver editorial? I'm traditionally. No. So Dave, so Dave runs. Are you edit looking to outright? grow that up? When Dave said that, I want to say, I don't know the exact year. Maybe it was 2012. I don't think Dave would say that today, to be honest with you. And I think when you look at our content in the last year or year and a half since I've been there, I don't think you see us saying those kind of things. So, no, I don't put a hand on edit and I don't want to. But I also think that you see an evolution. I think it's very convenient to say that Barstool is sexist. I also think it's very convenient to judge the past by today's standards. I also think that this is a company that intentionally is not PC. And I want to harness all of those things. And, you know, I think at our core, our guys just want to do things that are funny. And that's what I'm focused on. And that's what I believe in. 
as a manager. Yes. So another thing that I think you took a little bit of heat for, but I understand. I'm texting. Look, yeah. We're in a, yes. We're texting. going there? Yeah, we're going to. Why okay. not? Yeah. Um, so you told the New York Times in an interview that you text candidates for jobs on weekends just to kind of see how fast they'll respond within three hours is acceptable. I had a, a very long interview, like a three and a half hour interview with the New York Times. And the whole interview was pretty much about things you suck at. It was basically like, why do you suck? And I was like, oh, I can talk about this forever. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of things I suck at. And what are your failings? Like, what aren't you good at? And what's uncommon? The context for that whole statement was when I was at AOL or Yahoo or Microsoft or any traditional company, like, it was a predictable job. Like, people showed up at 9.15 or whatever time, and they left at a predictable time in the evening, and it just stopped in there. And when I got to Barstool, I saw how alive it was and how constant it was. And anyone who works in news and information or in sports understands that most things happen on nights and weekends. And one of the things that I think is really important is that when we hire people, they understand what they're walking into. Culturally, mission-wise, vision-wise, practically, executionally, um, and also how I am and how we are as a manager. I'm more fluid, just me personally, and I'm not saying it's good, and it's there's definitely a lot of it that's not good. But the thing about texting people, it wasn't texting people on the weekends. What it was was that I am always thinking about work, and that's my issue or my gift or just that's how I'm wired and that's that. Um and I like people who are also always thinking and doesn't have to be about work, but just thinking and intellectually curious. And what I said was that I text people on odd hours and I see, you know, I see if they respond. And I can see where that created a lot of controversy. I stand by that I do it because I also want to, I want to have a relationship with someone and I understand boundaries and I'm super respectful of that, but I also want to have a connection. And I think in a place like Barstool that is growing so fast and which so much unexpected happens, I think it's important to know to be responsive in general. So you've got your dream job, mm -hmm. CEO of yeah. a site and brand that you've been loving for mm -hmm. years. How do you think you've gotten to the point where you've got that job? and? What do you wish you knew when you were just starting out early in your career mm. that you know now? I think I got here through luck and through really hard work and drive and a desire to put myself in situations that, that I felt uncomfortable in or that I wasn't qualified for. One of my best friends texted me something and he's the one who usually gives me shit for most everything that I do. I think it was after ESPN and I was, I took it hard and he said, you know, what's different or what's, what I really appreciate is that as people get older, they tend to get smaller or into more predictable routines and they kind of retreat. And he was like, you, you haven't retreated. I really believe in that. Like I'm curious and I like people and I like to work and I think I've just put myself out there, to be honest. And I've certainly screwed up in that process and failed and 
could have done better a thousand things to get here. But I think that's a big thing. The things that I would tell young people is I think I stayed in big companies and in traditional roles way too long. When I was the CMO of AOL, I realized I don't want to be a CMO. I want more than that. I don't feel fulfilled by it. I feel a lot of times that I was lying to myself that what I was doing was really fulfilling to me. I'm like, I'm actually an operator. But I was so proud to have gotten there. And I'd spent so many years working to get there that I was like, how can you feel like this now that you're here? But I looked around and I looked at what CMOs of big brands were doing. And I was thinking about what am I going to do next? And, and I was like, Ugh, like, that's just not my path. So I would say to people that it works out and to take a risk. And it's so trite to be like, be okay to fail. But I think putting yourself out there is one of the best things you can do. And it hurts sometimes. And it's not comfortable, but it makes you stronger and gives you something it gives you something that you can take forward that no one else has. Thank you, Erica. This is really Thank fun. You. Really Thank appreciate you so much. it. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. The show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Dan Richards. Our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff, and I'm Allison Chantel. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll be back with more success next week. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.